With that, let's, uh, let's get into our text. I'll be reading, as I've said, uh, out of the, the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV. And, and I've told you already that many of us are memorizing uh, the section that we've been studying. Um, our focus tonight will be Romans chapter 12, verse 13, but I first want to read the whole section to you, beginning in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and uh, we'll read all the way to the end. Paul says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to... Do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all the beautiful weather. We thank you for uh, this uh, way that we have to connect with each other on the web. And uh, so I guess I thank you for modern technology. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the word. And I pray that tonight, as we look as practically as we can at verse 13, that you would teach our hearts, Lord, and that you prepare us for the ministry of benevolence and hospitality. And um, yeah, so Lord, we thank you. We also pray, Lord, that in regard to um, our society, Lord, we wanna open our economy up safely and, uh, and Lord, not at the expense of those that might be harmed uh, by it. And uh, Lord, we realize that our health and our economy are uh, intertwined and so our, our government needs wisdom. And Lord, even as we as a church uh, begin to talk about meeting together again, which we're all eager about, uh, the elders and I are gonna need wisdom to do that. And uh, so we just pray that you'd grant that, uh, Lord, for the sake of your people and all those, Lord, that are created in your image. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, return to verse 13, as I said. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and... Seek to show hospitality. Now, the idea of contributing or distributing, depending on the translation you have, it comes from a Greek word uh, that means to share. As you, if you have the NIV, you'll see that as the translation. It really means to partner with someone, and here it means to partner with them concerning their needs, if their needs are not being met. And so Paul is saying that our Christian duty is to contribute to needs. Now this ministry uh, today is typically called benevolence. It's, it's relief motivated by love. But I think we need to talk about what an actual need is. What is a real necessity? And uh, this is an important issue to settle because depending on how you define need could potentially cost you greatly 
uh, as far as time and money is concerned. If we confuse luxury for need, we might get ourselves into trouble and we may end up being the ones that fall into need. Typically, when we talk about actual needs, the, the very necessities of life, we have three things in mind, food and water, which we'll treat as one thing, clothing, and then shelter. And that's really true, at least when it comes to our, our most basic physical needs, and that's what Paul is addressing here in the text. But when it comes to our actual needs, very few of us are psychologically and emotionally prepared to live with just those needs met because we are so used to an abundance and variety of foods, overly accommodating shelter with modern amenities, and way more clothing than is necessary. Most of us have never been without an abundance of first world luxuries or experienced life with nothing more than our most basic needs. Most Americans are like the fattened calf who's ready for the slaughter, and just the idea of being reduced to nothing more than our needs is really frightening. I mean, just enough food to live on one day at a time, nothing in storage, nothing in the pantry, one or two changes of clothing, taking the weather into account, and shelter, uh, not necessarily running water or electricity. That scares some of us. Uh, But it's not uncommon in some parts of the world, and what is interesting is they are often happier than those in developed countries. The difference between Western society and those in underdeveloped countries is so drastic that those of us here in Western culture are tempted to think that their needs are different than our own. But the only real difference between us is our difference. We all share the same needs. Now, this morning during our family worship, I presented this idea to my children by having them consider what life would actually be like if only their basic needs were met. And I gave them the example of the native children in Kenya who live in the bush. They have only the essentials, food and water, shelter and clothing. They don't have plumbing or any kind of running water. Uh, The tribe that I visited, they would go uh, to a natural well that they would have to climb down into between two uh, large stones, uh, get their water, and then they'd have to pack it back to their, their home, their hut. They didn't have electricity. They slept on the floor with their livestock. Uh, They didn't have a toy box full of toys, and they didn't have a closet full of clothing. There were no trampolines, no bicycles, and as far as I could see, there were no shoes. Now, it wasn't intended to make my children feel guilty for the things that they had, but to illustrate how different life would be with just our necessities. Life can be quite simple, and their way life can be quite sobering. Now, as Christians, When one of our own is deprived of their real needs, unable to provide for their own needs, and without family to help them provide those needs, it is for us to supply those needs. And if we cannot meet their needs individually, uh, then it should be the collective responsibility of the whole church. Now, uh, John and James, they both have some things to say in this regard. Uh, John says, by this we know love, Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.16-18 
Our concern and care for our siblings in Christ isn't just an obligation for us, it's a demonstration of God's love in us. It's proof that we've become recipients of God's love through regeneration. It means that we're saved. James adds to this, he says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2, 14 through 17. If faith does not compel us to tend to the needs of a fellow believer who is destitute, it's very possible that we do not have faith at all. Just like John says, there's no evidence of regeneration. Now, it seems strange, I think, in our culture to turn someone away who is legitimately destitute because our culture has been so highly influenced by Christianity, whereas the ancient world was not so compassionate, especially in the Roman world where benevolence was extremely rare. Early Christians were accused of taking better care of Romans than Romans. It's more of a a compliment. It was actually a complaint of a governor to the emperor that Christians were taking better care of the Romans than the Romans were doing themselves. It was Christian. It was new. Uh, Benevolence was certainly something taught in God's law, but it wasn't always practiced by the Jews. In fact, Israel was often rebuked and they were disciplined for being, uh, rather not being benevolent toward the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. But in America, the government and most people in general feel some responsibility for those in need. As I said, this behavior was infused into the culture by the influence of Christianity, and we should continue to practice it. Because benevolence is a Christian attribute that was infused to us, as John says, by God. It's the proof of God's love in us. But when it comes to needs, there are other factors that have to be considered, especially in the context of benevolence or relief. It's not quite as simple as food, clothing, and shelter. When we get requests here at the church, or we discover that someone's situation is less than desirable, we have to have a standard by which to judge a real need from a luxury. I mean, we love people, and so we want to help them, but Paul commands us to love people with discernment, just as God loves with discernment. Paul prayed, he says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge in all discernment, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. It's Philippians 1.9. Discernment doesn't prevent us from loving people. Discernment informs us how best to love someone in their current situation. And there are things that must be considered when evaluating someone's needs. Now, I certainly don't have the time to give you an exhaustive list, but I want to provide you uh, maybe with an outline or sort of a skeleton of an outline to go by in, in the context of benevolent ministry. So it's good to talk about family and how they should be involved, uh, prevention in benevolence, climate, uh, acquisition, the tools by which we acquire uh, our, our needs, And then laziness, irresponsibility, and intolerability. I'll treat those together. And then tragedy with natural disaster. Now, let me explain what I mean by these terms. Let's start with family. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is instructing Timothy about the care of widows in the church. 
Now, not all widows should fall under the care of the church, but should be first cared for by their adult children, if they have them, or their family, if they have them. The first entity responsible for people in God's design is the immediate family, not the church. Now, if they have adult children, now, I'm sorry, yeah, if they have adult children or other family members that could care for them but refuse to care for them, that's when the church needs to get interested. But where the family can and is caring for their own, the church should abstain. This also goes for orphan children. So immediate family should be considered before the church is burdened. Another one, prevention. Uh, prevention is super important to our basic needs as well. For example, if someone has a leaky roof or a faucet and they do not have the money, family, experience, or physical ability to fix it, the problem will just get worse and worse and more expensive over time, which will eventually be a greater burden for everyone, whether it's the immediate family, the church, or society. People's problems just trickle down and out of the home until it burdens everyone. Now, I don't know how many roofs and faucets that we've fixed uh, over the last 14 years that I've been here um, for whatever reason uh, that people couldn't do it for themselves. Now, these were great opportunities to show love and to prevent something worse for their future. That is good. It's a good need to provide. But two things have to be emphasized here. These people were unable to get it done themselves for whatever reason, and it was preventative. You see, by Christ's design, the church is not a maintenance organization, so we shouldn't feel compelled to fix faucets and roofs for people who have the money, the experience, or the physical ability to do it themselves. We are called to meet people's needs when they or the family cannot. Another thing, real quick, is climate. Uh, the climate and seasons are another factor when it comes to our needs. We, we typically recognize these things intuitively, especially in the winter when there's snow on the ground or it's pouring rain. People's clothes and sheltering, uh, their, their needs look different from one place or we might say from one season to another. So needs can be specific or they can be specialized based upon geography. So we would say that people in North Alaska have different clothing and sheltering needs than those who live in Belize, where the temperature is about 70 degrees all year round. And the winters in Washington, though typically mild, could be devastating to someone without shelter and the proper clothing. Another thing uh, where we see climate uh, playing in as a factor with this is when Jesus was in Judea uh, teaching uh, in Jerusalem, he was sleeping on the ground uh, in the, on the Mount of Olives, and for his shelter, he had his outer garment. So, so climate affects our needs to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, in Lima, Peru, perhaps, uh, or for example, I probably wouldn't prioritize a leaky roof uh, because it only rains there like once every hundred years or so, and uh, so don't want to prioritize that, but Washington is certainly a different story. So while things are basically the same, practically, uh, they can look very different. What about acquisition. Another thing that is important to consider is the means by which people acquire their needs. The tools of the trade by which people secure their basic needs is an essential need. Uh, if you're a carpenter by trade, you acquire your needs by the tools you use, and without them, you cannot meet your needs. So if someone is a carpenter who lives paycheck by paycheck, and all of their tools get stolen, it's not long before they're in a state of emergency. Now, 
Benevolence could come by way of providing them with food, clothing, and rent, but without those tools, benevolence would have to be perpetuated month after month for an undetermined amount of time. But if the community got together and replaced all the tools, along with a lockbox and some insurance, the carpenter could get back to work and back to providing his needs. Samuel, would you please stop? Thanks, pal. We want people back to work. So food, shelter, and clothing, those are primary needs. But if, that's, uh, <clears throat> but if all that is needed are the tools of acquisition in order to secure those needs, it may be better, better for uh, those, those tools to be provided rather than the needs themselves. The longer they go without the tools, the longer the community goes without the service they provide. And the longer they cannot provide for their own needs, the longer they are a burden to society. So providing needs in this situation probably looks different, but it's still necessary. Of course, within reason. Because a carpenter's tools are one thing, where a farmer's combine is another. Now, that's a whole other story uh, that I think is a part of the commonwealth. It's not for our discussion tonight. So the point isn't just to feed, clothe, and shelter people. Ideally, we want people on their feet, providing for their own needs, and in a position to provide for other people. We want people to be helping people. What about laziness, irresponsibility, and intolerability? Uh, I think one of the things that can be the most difficult uh, to evaluate in the context of benevolence, even within the church, is whether or not someone is to blame for their own demise. Even among Christians, we find people that are lazy. They're irresponsible and intolerable in the workplace. And so when someone's needs come to our attention, we should investigate a little to see whether or not they are the, the, the greatest contributor to their own problems. Because when you help people who are lazy, irresponsible, or can't keep a job because they're intolerable at the workplace, or they're unethical, you're not actually helping them. What you're doing is you're financing all the things they need to repent of. You see, laziness, being irresponsible, intolerable, and unethical, those are all sinful. Nothing of which the church should be encouraging. So what do we do in these situations? Either way, the thing is we want to help people, but what's the best course of action with these people? First of all, we want to address the spiritual and the moral issues and seek the repentance. You know, none of these things are okay for those that uh, profess Christ. And then we want to be wise about supplying their needs as they get their feet under them, which can often be a long-term investment that requires contingencies. Biblical wisdom has to be applied to help people like this. Otherwise, we'll just perpetuate their sinful habits. Benevolence requires discretion. It has limitations. It requires wisdom. That is, it's not always smart to be benevolent. Sometimes it's harmful. We need, we need understanding and direction when it comes to providing for those types of needs. So for example, Paul told the Thessalonians, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Paul says, this is a command from Christ, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. So Paul didn't think that benevolence was mindless giving. He certainly believed that benevolence should be liberal in its generosity but not lacking in its discretion. Also, notice that Paul didn't say, if anyone cannot work, 
neither shall they eat. That would be void of mercy and compassion. Paul said, if anyone will not work. Paul isn't talking about those who cannot work for whatever reason, but those who will not work for whatever reason. So Paul's not talking about someone who has been laid off and are diligently looking for work and in the meantime cannot support themselves. He's not talking about someone who is so disabled or elderly that they're unable to work. He's not talking about an orphan who isn't old enough to work. He's not talking about someone who just lost everything because of natural disaster, war, persecution, or famine, or those who have been told they cannot work because of a government shutdown. These are the people who need help. Just like in the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who was injured, robbed, and left for dead doesn't need our deliberation. His needs are imminent and they're obvious. Paul was talking about people who will not work, refuse to work for whatever reason, and expect others to front the bill and take care of them. This is interesting. You know, God's law considered the poor those whose material poverty was no fault of their own, especially the blind, the lame, the orphans, and the widows, assuming she's not responsible for her husband's death. In the Old Testament, God made provisions for the poor who were able to work, but it wasn't a handout. Now, they could be legally indentured to another Israeli, of course, with serious rights. They could glean from the fields of others, but they were responsible for collecting, preserving, and preparing the food. You see, they didn't have refrigerators back then, so food had to be handled responsibly or there would be nothing later. And also, at the gate of every city was an annual collection for the orphans and widows. But again, they were responsible for preserving and preparing it. These were not meals ready to eat. The poor still had to work for their food, preserve their own food, and prepare it for themselves. Someone else in the community didn't glean grain for them, preserve it for them, and prepare it for them on a daily basis when they were hungry. That's not the nature of poverty, that's royalty. Uh, We would do that for the elderly, the disabled, and injured, but we should never do it for any uh, able-bodied person who refuses to work. If someone is able to work but refuses to work, they should go hungry until they're motivated to work. That's a command of Christ. And if they're intolerable, intolerable to work with, they should go without their needs met until they repent and change their behavior. Christians should be a blessing at the workplace. And work is good and it's a godly thing. You know, God instituted work in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the world. So people, they, they should stop treating work like it's a product of the fall. It's certainly been affected by the fall, but it's not a product of the fall. Also, we have been created in the image of God who is a worker, John chapter 5, verse 17, and therefore, we have a moral obligation to work. So in this whole discussion, we're not talking about someone who cannot work or they're left with nothing because of circumstances that are out of their control. We're talking about people who are lazy, irresponsible, and intolerable. These sins should not be rewarded but used as a motivator to repent and get back to work. So there are limitations to our benevolence and wisdom should be applied to our giving. Again, Paul prayed for the Philippians, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, Philippians 1.9. Paul is saying, as you love people, get informed and act wisely. We should not allow compassion to get the best of us. 
We have responsibility to be both benevolent and wise in our generosity to those in need. Let's move on. What about tragedy and natural disaster? Um, So like when a house burns to the ground, when houses um, or someone's livelihood is swept down river because of a flood, uh, there really is no question about their most basic needs and the imminent nature of those needs. Uh, All of these things need to be secured immediately. But really what we've discovered is that the danger in in the midst of disaster relief happens to be the amount of generosity People become so generous in these situations that the supply can overwhelm the demand and then things go to waste. So when it comes to um, uh, disaster relief, uh, good management and communication is essential. All right, let's, let me begin to transition out of this a little bit. Uh, if something doesn't fit into one of these categories, we need to be careful calling it benevolence or relief. If you're doing something for someone that can do it themselves or pay to have it done, it's not really benevolence, it's a favor or it's just kindness, which is, good, which is a good thing in the right context. Um, I help friends and neighbors as much as I can, but I don't think of it as benevolence because it's not, it's just friendly. In the context of benevolence, when it's not an emergency situation, the general rule is never do something for someone that can do it for themselves. When everything is provided for someone in this situation, when they're able to provide for themselves, it is proven to be detrimental to the person and eventually it harms the commonwealth of the community. Now, the debate rages, of course, as to whether these principles principles apply to believers only or to believers and unbelievers alike. Well, I personally believe that it applies to everyone. First, because they're created in the image of God who created them for work. Second, for the health of the church. And third, for the health of society. Every man and every woman who is able to work should work. They should contribute. Now, in the context of our conversation, when it comes to believers who are truly in need, it is the responsibility of the church to supply their needs first. And what is left over is for those outside the church. Paul told the Galatians, therefore, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. Now, of course, there's many other things that we could talk about. I'd like to talk about them, but I need to finish our text and and I need to get to Chinese food, to be honest. Uh, Paul concludes verse 13 with, and seek to show hospitality and seek to show hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality means to show love to strangers, to show love to strangers, to be fond of them, uh, to be kind to them. Uh, Here it's in the context of helping them in times of need, that is for food, clothing, and shelter. It's not simply inviting your uh, stranger uh, over to your house for dinner. That's not really the context here, but it's providing the needs uh, for strangers. But there is something different about the application of this. Paul says, seek to show hospitality. When it comes to strangers, we should be more than prepared to show hospitality. We should be looking for the opportunity to be hospitable. Paul seems to be talking about outreach. He's encouraging the believer to look for real needs and find ways to meet those needs in the lives of strangers. Why would we do that? Well, I believe it's to influence them for Christ. 
to create opportunities to share the gospel, to introduce them to the people of Christ and the true nature of Christianity, which so many people are confused about today. Benevolence, hospitality, that is a great, creates a great opportunity. You know, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying good works there are used to point people to God, point people to the Lord. Paul told Titus that God purified us so we might be zealous for every good work, Titus 2.14. He said to Titus that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. That's Titus 3.8. And he says, because it's good and it's profitable for men. And then he concludes by saying, and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Christians should be doing good works. And finally, Peter said that our conduct as Christians should be honorable among unbelievers so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may, by our good works which they see, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's 1 Peter 2.12. Again, it's all about influencing people for Christ. So, seek out the needs of unbelievers, strangers, and use it for the gospel and for opportunities to share Christ. Well, I think for tonight I've said enough. Um, I guess to conclude, meeting needs is about loving the body of Christ and influence unbe- influencing unbelievers to come to Christ. All right, well, I hope that was instructive for you. I hope you were blessed. And, uh, well, be benevolent. Seek opportunity. Uh, use it for... Uh, opportunities to share the gospel. Me and uh, Roger were talking about what that looks right looks like right now, uh, with our our lockdown, with the stay home order, with social distancing, and all that. Well, um, I believe in a God who provides wisdom. So pray for opportunities that you might be a blessing uh, to to people that have needs, and then go to work. All right. Well, let's pray, and I'll let you get on with your evening. Well, Father, we we thank you. Uh, We thank you for the instruction of your word. Lord, we thank you that um, you have provided for us, not simply our needs, Lord, especially here in the West. Lord, we have way more than we possibly need. And it's very possible that you've granted all that so that we can distribute it uh, to others. And so I pray that we would not uh, hold so tightly to the material things of this world, but we'd be liberal in our generosity Uh, Lord, to those in the body of Christ, especially or foremost, and Lord, then to the rest of the world that that so needs Christ. And so help us to be creative. Uh, Help us to have eyes that can see and ears that can hear. And uh, Lord, that we might live for your glory. Help us always, Lord, to be useful for your glory. And uh, so we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Love you guys. Lord bless you, and we'll see you Sunday. All right, bye-bye.